Hebrews 5, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Amen. We are learning about sin and judgment from these chapters in the book of Hebrews. What does this chapter have to say about sin and judgment? Primarily in verses 1 to 10, it has to do with the fact that Christ came into the world to pay for our sins, according to to the priesthood of Melchizedek. Christ came into the world for our sins, to pay for our sins. It was necessary because our sins were deserving the wrath of God, punishment, eternal death, the lake of fire, fire and brimstone, and burning wind was the portion of our cup designated by the justice of God. Yet Christ had to come into the world to pay for our sins so that we are not going to experience that in the life to come. That's verses 1 to 10. It reminds us of the sacrificial and high priestly work of Christ on our behalf. It puts forward and reminds us of our sins. And why does the apostle do so in verses 1 to 10? Because the people, they were apt or they had a tendency to backslide because of what the false teachers were telling them. The false teachers were saying, there's no need to believe in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. You're good enough. Your works are good enough. It's okay. We don't need to believe in Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ who died on the cross and rose from the dead. There's no need for that. 
Or, they would say, believe in Jesus, that he died and rose again, but also, also, God requires good works of you. Because God's grace is in you, and you have a free will, you must exert your free will to add good works to the work of Christ. Some would believe that. In fact, today, many believe in both of those views. There's no need to believe in Jesus, that he died for our sins. And because there's no need, people in other religions can be saved without believing that Jesus died for their sins. God will save them. For various reasons, he will save them. That's one view that is also common today. Another view that is also common is, yes, believe in Jesus, but do good works. In order to compile, to, to gather good works that will be God's way of justification on the day of judgment. Yes, that is very common. Roman Catholicism teaches it. John Piper in New Calvinism, he teaches it. There are many who teach that because they believe in the works of men. They don't believe in the true grace of God that brings about our regeneration, our faith, our repentance, and the good works of the fruit of the Spirit in us. They don't believe it that way. They believe that it is their own power, their own will, their own free will that saves them, both in their conversion and throughout their Christian life. That is the common belief today also. But this passage is militating against it. It is teaching against it. Also, verses 11 to 14 is, uh, is a rebuke of the people. They had been gathering for a long time, long enough time, that they should be teachers of the word. And he doesn't mean necessarily teachers in the local church having the office of teacher. He doesn't necessarily mean it that way. He's meaning it in a common sense that they ought to have some knowledge and some obedience behind them, some experience behind them, some righteousness behind them, that would give them a platform, the ability to be teaching others the truth of the gospel. They should be at that point, yet they're not at that point. So he confronts that sin of ignorance and laziness in reference to the things of God. Let's now review, we'll first review verses 1 to 4. 1 to 4. <clears throat> For every priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. This is true not only in the Bible, but it's true in all religions. Why do religions have priests? Why do they have these priests? Because the priests are those men, and it's usually men, even in other religions. It is men who are taken from among men, the common men. They are set aside to do the task, the religious task, on behalf of the people to be, in a sense, on the earth, a mediator between the people and God. They are supposedly hearing from God and telling the people, and then they hear from the people and then pray to God on behalf of the people. They also offer sacrifices. This is the case, certainly the case, 
in the Old Testament, certainly the case from the book of Genesis onward. From Genesis, and especially it's highlighted and emphasized in the Mosaic Covenant, from Moses onward. This is the duty. The priest is taken from among men in order to represent the men to God and pray for the men to God, and then to hear from God, know the word of God, and then explain it to the people of God so that they might obey God in things pertaining to God. They also offer gifts and sacrifices. They offer the sacrifices as commanded in the Old Testament in order for the people to be recognizing the heinousness of their sins, to make sure that they understand they should have humility and contrition in relation to their sins. And also for them to understand that the sacrifices are typological or typological sacrifices. The sacrifices are not redemptive sacrifices, but to the extent that the worshiper understands that the sacrifice is a symbol of the coming sacrifice of Christ, they are forgiven. But if they don't believe that the animal is only a type, only an example, an illustration of the coming sacrifice of Christ, they have no forgiveness. He reiterates this point in chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. Hebrews 10, verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. When Moses and the prophets, when the priests, the godly priests, when they taught the people, they were teaching the people, the sacrifices are shadows, not the substance. The substance is Christ. Only Christ can take away your sins. That's why John the Baptist exclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, or the sin of the world. John 1, 29. John the Baptist understood that the lambs of the Old Testament did not actually take away sins. Only Christ, only Christ by his sacrifice could take away sins. We also note that it says in verse 1, for sins. In verse 3, it says to offer sacrifices for sins. This little phrase, for sins, is the doctrine of the substitutionary death of Christ. Christ died in our place. He received the punishment, the penalty, the judgment, the condemnation we should have received in order for us not to receive that. That's why it says for sins. It's not in order to commit sins. It's not in order to bless sins. It's not in order to endorse sins, but as a payment for sins because our sins were so egregious. Our sins were so 
depraved, corrupt, despicable in the sight of God, that a judgment was deserved for our sins, and the only way to remove that judgment, that guilt, was to Je for Jesus to die for our sins. Substitutionary death of Christ. That's what happened when he died on the cross, in our place. What we could not do to earn our salvation, Jesus did for our salvation. Verse 2, the, the priest, he, he's talking now about the regular average priest. He's not talking about Christ, but the average priest, because he's going to now compare the average priest who's taken from among men to Christ. The regular average priest, he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. He, of course, is talking about the humble priest, the humble priest, the knowledgeable priest, the priest who understands his duty in relation to God and the people. When he sees the people, he will have, in a sense, a, a certain gentleness in helping the people, in identifying with the people. Why? Because he sins like they sin. He uses his mouth wrongly. He uses his hands wrongly. He goes to places he shouldn't go. He has done that, and he should repent of that. So he can deal gently when he's telling the people, listen, these are sins. You must forsake them. Repent of these sins. He can deal gently with them because he himself has the same nature as they do. Verse 3, And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. The priest, he, yes, is dedicated and appointed to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. The worshipers come, present their sacrifices to the priest, and then he offers them, correct? But before he can offer them for the people, he has to go through the sacrificial system himself. He has to be set apart. He has to be consecrated. He has to confess his own sins. He has to come to a realization of his own sins. He has to also understand the proper meaning of the sacrifices for his own sins, which he must offer before he is prepared, before he is consecrated, to be able to hold the position of priesthood in order to receive the ones that the worshipers bring to him. He has to confess, he has to repent, he has to have sacrifices first for himself offered, and then he can help the people. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is also the way it's supposed to be for the pastor. As Ezra the priest is described, it says in Ezra 7.10, For Ezra set his heart to seek the law of the Lord, and to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra 7.10. Ezra was a priest and scribe of the Most High God. And he first made sure his own life was in order 
for him to help the people and to teach the people. The same in 1 Timothy 4.16. 1 Timothy 4.16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Both for yourself and for those who hear you. Another aspect of the earthly priest, the Aaronic and Levitical priest, is in chapter 5, verse 4. Hebrews 5, 4. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. The earthly priests, they don't take the honor upon themselves. They don't say, I'm going to be a priest. I will be a priest. I want to be a priest. No one can stop me. It doesn't happen that way. It should not happen that way. Because it's a position of honor. It's a position of honor, and it's a position where the priest is a representative of God to the people. Well, if he's going to be a representative of God to the people, shouldn't God have something to say on who represents him? Of course. That's why it says in verse 4 that he has to be called by God, as Aaron was called by God. God called Moses and Aaron to be his priests. He called them. They did not call themselves. That's the way it works. So that this means that their duty, their obligation is to God to represent God. If they are called by God, they better speak the word of God. If they are called by God, they better do the works of God. If they are called by God, they better represent God to the people the way God wants. If they don't, they transgress. Now, having explained the way the earthly priests are, verses 5 to 10, the priest who came from heaven, who descended from heaven, 5-5. Now the comparison to Christ, who is better than Aaron and better than any of his descendants, including Samuel, including Jeremiah, the prophet, including Ezra, the priest and scribe, including even Moses. He's better than anybody. Verses 5 to 10. Why is he better than anybody? And why is it that since he is so superior, we ought to pay attention to him? We ought to be submitted to him. We ought to have our life in obedience to him. Why? Verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. He is making an implicit reference to God the Father. In verse 5, Christ did not usurp authority, He did not appoint himself. 
But God the Father said to him in Psalm 2, verse 7, the Father spoke to the Son and designated him as his only begotten Son. Begotten in the sense that he's the eternal Son of God, but in this passage, my Son, today I have begotten you, has to do with his resurrection. So he says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Which means if God says that about his son, he is identifying to us, telling us what he has already predetermined to be the case in reference to his son. Psalm 2, verse 7. God said it to his son. Did God ever say these words to any man on the earth? No. He didn't say it to angels, and he has not said it to any man. In Hebrews 1.5, he has said, For to which, chapter 1, verse 5, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son today, I have begotten you. He never said it to an angel, he never said it to a man, but he did say it to his only son, the son of the father, and also, this is a decree or declaration that is specially announced in the hearing of the son. And then it's reported to us. Verse 6, another reason that Christ is superior, just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Taken from Psalm 110, verse 4. Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Who is the speaker again? The Father. God the Father, speaking to His Son, says to His Son, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He's a priest forever. Why is it, why is it that He says forever? And how is that different from Aaron and all of Aaron's descendants? Aaron's descendants and Aaron himself, he was not a priest forever. They were not priests forever. They were priests for as long as they lived. When they died, they ceased being priests. And it would be their sons and grandsons who would take charge of their responsibilities. Right? But in the case of Christ... He holds his priesthood permanently. He holds it forever. Chapter 7. Let's read chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 15. 715 to 25. 715 to 25. Christ is an eternal priest, not a temporary priest, eternal priest. 7.15, and this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, 
who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is the setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God, and inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests, priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much more, the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, he lives forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is superior, Christ is superior, because he rose from the dead, he has an indestructible life, he has immortality, he is the source of our immortality, therefore there is no need for his priesthood to be transferred to another man. He keeps it, he retains it forever. Contrary to false religions, such as in Mormonism, that say that the young men, they obtain the Aaronic priesthood, and then at a certain point in their life, also while they're quite young, they receive the Melchizedekian priesthood for the rest of their life. No, it's, it's a heresy and a false doctrine. They are, they are diminishing the priesthood of Christ when they give this priesthood of Melchizedek to their men. They're diminishing it. They are obliterating it. They're calling it useless because according to the scripture, it cannot be transferred to anyone because it is so superior. Only Christ holds it. We should also ask about this Melchizedek. It says it in verse 6 for the first time and also in verse 10 for the first uh, second time in this passage, that Christ has a priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. We read in chapter 7 the same, according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, who was this Melchizedek, and why is it that this priesthood is so important? We should ask the question because it, occurs only two times, or Melchizedek's name occurs only two times in the Old Testament. And because it occurs only two times, superficial readers of the Bible, and even false teachers who distort the scriptures to their own destruction, they think that it's only mentioned two times, so it's insignificant. As though something mentioned only two times makes it, by definition, insignificant. No, it depends on what it is depends on what's being taught. 
In Genesis 14, 17 to 24, Melchizedek appears. And also in Psalm 110, verse 4. These are the two passages of the Old Testament. Genesis 14, 17 to 24, and Psalm 110, verse 4. That, or 1 to 4, or the whole of Psalm 110, it's not a very long psalm. There, he appears. His name appears. He appears in Genesis, and then Christ is said in Psalm 110 to hold this priesthood. Chapter 7, Hebrews 7, verses 1 and 1 to 3. Hebrews 7, verses 1 to 3, in terms of his identity. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. This Melchizedek, he's described in these various ways, and it says that he abides or holds this priesthood perpetually. Now, if he holds it perpetually, it has to be a pre-incarnate Christ who appears. And this man was so great that Abraham recognized his greatness and superiority in relation to himself. Yes, Abraham, who is the father of the faithful, is lesser than Melchizedek. How so? He explains, 7 verse 4. 7 verses 4 to 10. Now observe how great this person was, or this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who receive the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak through Abraham, even Levi who received tithes paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And this shows that Melchizedek was superior to Abraham. Why make a comparison to Abraham? Because the people, the Hebrew people, had a tendency, a perverse tendency, we know this from the ministry of John the Baptist. We know this from the ministry of Christ, that they often called upon Abraham as their father. John said, do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, for God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even Jesus says, says to them, I know that you are Abraham's offspring, 
yet you seek to kill me. That is what Abraham did not do. You claim to be, you are physically, but you're not spiritually. So in this case, Abraham, if they claim Abraham, then they should claim the Melchizedek of Abraham. who is Christ himself, and superior to every Aaronic priest. If Christ is superior to every Aaronic priest, why are they trusting in their sacrifices by the Aaronic priest? Why are they trusting in their good works? Why are they not trusting, why are they not believing in Christ? That's the point of mentioning Melchizedek. Also, we should say, Melchizedek existed or appeared to Abraham before Moses lived, hundreds of years before Moses. If God made promises to Abraham, and Abraham recognized the superiority of Melchizedek, why would God institute another covenant, the Mosaic covenant, hundreds of years later, to subvert and supplant the covenant and the promises that God made to Abraham. That's the argument both of chapter 5, but it's going to continue this way through chapter 10. He's going to keep on mentioning Melchizedek, especially in chapter 7, and explain expansively the relationship of Melchizedek to Aaron. So if Melchizedek is superior, that means that the Aaronic Mosaic priesthood is subservient. It serves a role to support the priesthood of Melchizedek and the only one who has it, Christ. In what sense? To, in detail, expose the sins of the people. That is the reason. That is its purpose, which Galatians 3 explains all of this. The whole chapter explains this very fact. That Moses came later, Moses' covenant came later, only to buttress, only to explain, only to emphasize and highlight the sins of the people so that they would believe in Christ. That was the reason. So if that's the point Moses made, why are they saying, well, we believe Moses, but we don't believe in Christ? No, Moses preached Christ in this way, so you should believe in Christ. Verses 7 to 10. 7 says, In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Firstly, it says, In the days of his flesh, heretics who say he does not have flesh right now say, Hebrews 5 7 says, he had flesh when he came on the earth, but he doesn't have flesh now. Such as Jehovah's Witnesses will say that. Christian scientists will say that. He has no flesh now. But that's not what he's meaning. He's meaning in the days of his incarnation, in the days of his first coming, when his flesh was a mortal flesh. Not immortal flesh, mortal flesh. That's the point he's making in chapter 5, verse 7. Mortal flesh during the incarnation in order to die for our sins. 
He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. Yes, he prayed, and he prayed regularly at many points during his life and ministry, and especially in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was arrested by the mob and taken away for crucifixion. He was praying to God the Father. Remember, Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass. <clears throat> Yet, or nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Matthew 26, 39, and he prayed like this three times. Matthew 26, 39, 42 and 44. Well, we have another phrase that is prone to false teachers exploiting, and that is, able to save him from death. Aha, they say. You see, Jesus never died. Jesus never died. It says there, God saved him from death, so he never died. A misinterpretation, a distortion. Jesus did die, but saved from death, and he was heard because of his piety, has to do with the resurrection. And that's another falsehood. They say the book of Hebrews does not teach the resurrection. That's false. That's what these two phrases mean. Save him from death after three days. And he was heard because of his piety, because of his holiness, his godliness. He was perfect. He was saved from that. God heard his prayers. But other references to the resurrection of the dead in the book of Hebrews, we find in chapter 11, chapter 11, 17 to 19, chapter 11, 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Hebrews 11.35, Hebrews 11.35, women received back their dead by resurrection. And others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. 13, chapter 13, chapter 13, verse 20, 1320. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. The God of peace brought up from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Why is this significant? Because both his actual death and his actual bodily resurrection are crucial to our salvation. Absolutely crucial to our salvation. If we misunderstand, if we twist and distort both of these events for our salvation, there is no salvation. Absolutely no salvation. Romans 4.25. Romans 4.25. He who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. He had to be delivered up to death because of our transgressions and he had to be raised from the dead because of our justification. Otherwise, if he doesn't have life to convey to us, how can we have life 
be justified to life if he doesn't rise from the dead. He must rise from the dead in order to convey that life to us. Verse 8, Hebrews 5, 8, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He was a son. He was a perfect son. He was already perfect. As deity, he was perfect. And then as the son of God and son of man, manifest that way, manifested that way upon the earth during his incarnation, he still had to learn obedience. Meaning, just being born in the world wasn't enough. He had to consistently, perfectly, sinlessly live his whole life until his last breath. He had to do it because he did it on our behalf. We could not do it. He had to actively obey. The theologians call it active obedience. Passive obedience is his death on the cross. Actively and passively, he needed to be the perfect sacrifice. If he doesn't actively resist all sin, there's no salvation. This is the sense in which he means he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And he doesn't casually mention suffering because the problem with these Hebrew Christians was their old friends, their relatives were saying, what is this you're believing? It's crazy. It's nonsense. And they were persecuting them. They were tempting them. They were threatening the, to throw them out of the synagogue, put them out of the synagogue. These kinds of things were happening, and even violence against them. Seizure of their property, as he says in chapter 10. These persecutions were occurring. But Jesus suffered. He suffered on our behalf. If he suffered on our behalf, the kind of death and misery he experienced for us, what is it that we're suffering? Are we suffering more than he did? No. He suffered on our behalf. He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. In the same way, we will learn obedience from the things which we suffer. And it's necessary. Verse 9, having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. He was made perfect, not that he was sinless or sinfully imperfect. He doesn't mean made perfect because he was sinfully imperfect. That's not the meaning here. He had no sin, nor was any deceit in his mouth. 1 Peter 2.22 he made him who knew no sin to be, to be the sin offering on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 There wasn't any sin in him, but he's made perfect in that he perfectly went through his whole life and became that unblemished sacrifice for our sins. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the way in which he means made 
perfect. And because he is made perfect, all who obey him, he becomes the source of eternal salvation. All who obey him. And why does he say obedience? Because the moment we are called, or the, the moment the true gospel is preached, we are called to believe and repent. And if we believe and repent, then we're obeying that command. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 1.15 It's necessary for us to obey that charge, to believe and repent. We must believe it. And if we believe it, we are obeying him. And we are obeying him not only initially, but continually. Not temporarily, but permanently. Obedience should characterize us if we obey. 3.18 and 19. Hebrews 3.18. And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 6, 4, 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news or the gospel preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. 4.11, let us therefore, 4.11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. Obedience begins upon conversion, and it continues until the end of our life. Remember, Jesus said, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Matthew seven twenty three. The opposite of lawlessness is obedience. Law-keeping according to the way the Scripture means it. Not for salvation, not good work salvation, not that way, but the fruit and evidence of salvation will be our obedience. It is only to these people, only to these believers, that Jesus is the source of eternal salvation. Which means that if we reject what we've learned so far in these nine verses, he's not the salvation of these people, if we reject it. If we reject it, he's not our salvation. But if we believe it, he is our salvation. Verse 10, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Either the apostle is taking God's name in vain, or he's not. He says that Christ is designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Either he is designated by God or he's not designated by God. If he is designated by God, if he is appointed by God, verse 1, then we better pay attention to him. We better understand. We better follow him. We better believe in him and obey him. It's one way or the other. We must do it for salvation. And if we do not do it, we're actually 
spiting God. We're actually spitting upon God. We're actually denigrating the designation of God. God designated him. So pay attention to him faithfully. Now verses 11 to 14. Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Concerning him, concerning Melchizedek and what he means, he's going to, in 5.11 through chapter 6, he's going to attempt to get rid of this dullness of hearing. Because in chapter 7, he's going to explain more about Melchizedek. But at the moment, he says, I have much to say, we have much to say, but it's hard to explain. He's not saying it's hard to explain because the teaching is hard to explain. He's not saying it's hard to explain because the teaching or the doctrine is hard to explain. The problem is not in the content. The content or the theology is not the problem. The problem is not even the teacher, the apostle and his companions. The problem is not with them. So the problem is not God and the information or the doctrine God wants us to know. And the problem is not in the messenger or the preacher, the apostle and his companions. It's not in them. It's not that they have the, uh, uh, an inarticulate mind and mouth to be able to explain to people. That's not the problem. They're quite eloquent, actually. If you read a lot of the New Testament and Old Testament, the prophets and the apostles were quite eloquent people, quite literary people. They knew how to say things. The problem is not with God or the messengers of God. Where is the problem always? With the hearers. It's always with the hearers. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. The ears are closed. They're not paying attention. They say, we've already heard this before. We already know this. They say, well, what more is there? I don't want to learn this. They're also dull of hearing, probably because if they were attentive, then they would have to deal with their persecutors accordingly. But if they're dull, then they can put aside, set aside, sweep under the rug the things that their persecutors are saying and doing against them. They can lighten the affliction by ignoring the affliction. So how do you ignore the affliction? Well, don't give so much attention to the Word of God, which will remind you of the affliction and the kind of stand you should be taking against those afflicting you. This has happened for too long for these Christians, these Hebrew Christians. The typical, the typical date of the book of Hebrews is about A.D. 60, the year 60, which means it would be about 30 years after the ministry of Christ. And between AD 30 and AD 60, there's been about 30 years of ministry. 
We do not know at what point these particular Christians heard the gospel, but I think it would be safe to say that at least five or ten years had passed. At the very least, five or ten years had passed. And though he, now he says in verse 10, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. You ought to be teachers right now. Older women should be able to teach younger women. Mothers ought to be able to teach their children. Even fathers ought to be able to teach their children. This should be happening. Then in the local church, older men should be able to teach younger men. Older women able to teach younger women in the local church setting. And then evangelistically, everyone in the church, no one should be excluded. If you really believe it, you should be able to say it. I believed, therefore I spoke. So also we believe, therefore also we speak. We will speak that which we believe. If you don't believe it, you won't say it. 2 Corinthians 4.13 If you believe it, you will say it. So all of us should be equipped to be evangelistic, to be able to explain the gospel to people we meet day to day and among friends and relatives. We should be able to do it. We ought to be teachers of the gospel to them. But he says that they need to be retaught the elementary principles. They need to be taught the fundamentals again. They need to be taught the basics. And what are the basics? Do you think the basics are Jesus came into the world, Jesus died on the cross, is that it? No. He's not even talking about that. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Likely this is what he means because it's in the immediate context. Chapter 6, and he also uses the word elementary. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. As he said elementary in 5.12, he says elementary in 6.1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God, of instruction about washings, of laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Are we able to explain these doctrines to people? He's saying we should because he's calling them elementary teaching. We should be able to explain, not that we never learn about these and delve into them ever again, because we will constantly be doing it when we teach others these elementary teachings about the Christ. Do we understand them, and are we able to convey them and teach them to others? If so, then we can press on to maturity. If not, then let's learn them or relearn them. 5.13 For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. In life, when there are newborns, newborns of necessity, as nature teaches us, as God has provided for infants to drink, infants 
drink the milk of the mother. That's the way it's supposed to be. They don't eat a loaf of bread. They don't eat uh, ounces, five ounces of meat. They don't do things like that. They cannot eat lettuce and any vegetables. They have to partake of the mother's milk, right? That is proper for the infant while in infancy. But we said, does a 5-year-old, does a 10-year-old, does a 20-year-old, 30-year-old who's been born again and in the local church, are they only partaking of the mother's milk when they're 10 years old? Not even when they're 5 years old? Let alone 20 or 30 years old. They're not doing that. They should not be doing that. That's a shameful thing, right? By that point? But why is it that in church... People tolerate that. Why do they tolerate that? They shouldn't. Verse 14. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Solid food. Solid food is necessary at the right time for infants as they grow, as the babies grow. They need to begin tasting and consuming solid food. But even the solid food takes practice. Even the solid food for the little one requires their senses to be accustomed to eating certain foods. They will like or dislike certain foods, but they need to be accustomed to eating those things which they don't want to or like to do, right? Their senses need to be trained. To discern good and evil. And the same in the Christian life. We must partake of solid food. Not with the simple, simplistic doctrines again and again and again. But understand their significance and be able to teach others. Go deeper with those doctrines and be able to teach others. And this is not going to happen automatically. It's not going to happen on a bed of luxury. It's going to happen by practice and training. Practice and training. He's using the terminology of an athlete and even a soldier, even a farmer. He's using the terminology of those who have to exert effort. It is necessary because we tend to be sluggish. We tend to be lazy. We tend to make excuses. And he's saying, we need to be goaded. We need to be pricked. We need to have that goad, as the rancher does, to poke the animal, to make the animal continue going in the right path or as fast as the animal is supposed to be treading on the field. That must happen to all of us. He says in chapter 6, chapter 6, verses 9 to 12, this very doctrine of practice and training, not laziness or sluggishness. 6, 9. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, 
in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Sluggish, this adjective comes to us because of that little insect, the slug. The slug walks very slowly. It takes a long time for the slug to cross the sidewalk, for the slug to cross the street. It takes a long time, right? We shouldn't be that way. We should be diligent. All of us. He commends what we've already done, but it's not enough to be satisfied with what we've already done. We must press on and be diligent, all of us, to discern good and evil. Finally then, if we're not pursuing it actively, proactively, diligently, moving forward, then we're going to be moving backward. And as we're moving backward, backsliding, then we're not going to be discerning. And that's very easy to happen. It's very, very easy to happen. Each day, we are bombarded with a thousand lies. Lies in our head, lies from others near us, lies from uh, entertainment, lies from media, lies from friends, co-workers, classmates. We are bombarded with a thousand lies. And Satan, of course, and his demons, using these means to deceive us. Yet, we have to have discernment. How can we have discernment? How are we able to distinguish? How are we able to know the difference between good and evil if we don't know what's in the Bible? If we don't know what's in the Bible, we're not going to know the difference between good and evil. Whatever is in our own head and whatever others say will bombard us, will overtake us, will flood us, and we're going to say, of course that's the right way. Everybody's saying it. Why would they be wrong? They're, they're nice people. They're friendly, they're cordial, they're all nice guys. So why would they be wrong? How could they be wrong? Well, they might be wrong. We have to be able to discern good and evil. Every day, every moment of the day. And the tool God has given us is the Bible. If we don't know his word, then we cannot discern good and evil. So let's have a rededication to read it, to study it, Memorize it from beginning to end. Genesis to Revelation. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.